0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are uh, spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and ready to uh, focus and concentrate on what the uh, Holy Spirit has to teach us. And uh, then I will open in prayer. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to begin, and uh, then I'll open. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that In your word, you describe in detail for us uh, the overall uh, scope of history. You give us not only the beginning but also the end. And as we are able to look at the panorama of history from a vantage point of understanding uh, the direction of history, what your intents and purposes are within history and how You will be glorified in history. It gives us great joy to know that that even though we face many challenges in life on a day-to-day basis and even though there's a tremendous amount of uh, uncertainty and chaos in our world, that nevertheless you are still in control and your plan, your purposes will be worked out in history. In the same way that the prophets in the Old Testament uh, gave comfort and encouragement to Israel, even in the times when they were uh, under assault by the armies, of Nebuchadnezzar, and as they were defeated by Babylon and were hauled off into captivity, despite the fact that they were going through times of personal uh, tragedy, personal adversity, that nevertheless they could relax and trust in you because they knew that you were uh, had things under control and that you were in control and that they could trust you in the outworking of your plan. And so, Father, we follow in that example. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40, or thereabouts. have a little little review. We're looking at the um, spiritual life in the messianic kingdom, or what we also refer to as the millennial kingdom, because Revelation chapter 20 tells us that it will be a thousand years long. It's actually the prelude to eternity. So a lot of the things that apply to the uh, Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom uh, described in Revelation 20, continue that way as you continue beyond the end of the millennium on into eternity. So one of the factors that we want to look at is that of the spiritual life, which I began last time, and this opening slide, this title slide I have, The Spiritual Life in the Messianic Kingdom, uh, several of you have focused on the fact that that's the uh, uh, dome of the rock there, the mosque below it, but what's above it that is uh, faded out just a little bit is what's coming, and that is the future uh, temple that is described in uh, in uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Those nine chapters are some of the most interesting chapters, and for some people, the most Uh, debated chapters in some areas because uh, there's a lot of controversy there since these chapters indicate that there will be a future sacrificial uh, system in place in the kingdom. And for many Christians, the very idea that there will be restored sacrifices somehow uh, challenges their very notion of the completed work of Christ on the cross. And so we need to come to an understanding of how that uh relates uh, specifically in light of um Leviticus in light of Hebrews and other other things a lot of which we've studied ties into what we studied Sunday morning ties into what we're studying in Hebrews on a little bit on Thursday night so it's interesting how every now and then all three things that we're studying intersect together so in as we've looked at uh, the doc, this whole doctrine on the kingdom, coming out of Revelation 21, we, we looked at, first of all, what the Old Testament taught in terms of the leadership in the kingdom, and the Old Testament focuses on the key leader being uh, the Messiah, the anointed, the Messiah of God, who will come, who will be both a descendant of David, indicating humanity, as well as deity. He is the child that is given to us, Isaiah 9, 6, but that child given to us is also called the mighty God and the father of eternity, indicating both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah in in that one passage. And there are many other passages we've looked at uh, in the Old Testament to indicate that. Second thing we saw was the nature of the future kingdom, that the uh, one of the characteristics of the future kingdom is that it will be a time uh, of perfect peace. The, uh, there will be no war during that time. This is the focus of Isaiah 2-4, that uh, men will beat their spears into pruning hooks and their swords into plowshares, and men will learn war uh, no more. And that's the only time there's going to be peace. We live in a world today that yearns for some sort of utopia. And whether you're a socialist or Marxist on the left or whether you are uh, in many ways libertarian on the right, then the, the, both systems have a have a sense of utopianism about them, that somehow uh, man can bring in some measure of a perfect society and a perfect government, and it just isn't going to happen unless you have perfect people running the government. And the only time we're going to get that is when we get into the millennial kingdom, when you have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Under the Lord Jesus Christ, you have... uh, uh, the resurrected David, who will be ruling uh, in Israel under him, there's a human prince. And over the rest of the nations, there will be the uh, resurrected saints from the church age. And so that becomes the ruling uh, elite, and they are without sin because they're all in resurrection bodies. Now, another characteristic of the millennial kingdom is that the curse is rolled back so that there are Uh, no uh, there's no longer the animosity in the animal kingdom the uh, lion and the lamb will lie down together child can put his hand into a cobra's den and there won't be any danger and so it it's the only time that you have a a, something akin to the original circumstance uh, in the garden of garden of Eden and it is a time when God, again, will dwell upon the earth and establish his dwelling on the earth. And we see this in a number of different passages. Uh, in Zechariah uh, 8.3, and all of these are Old Testament passages. The only place that we get an understanding of the nature of the millennial kingdom is to go into the Old Testament. As I pointed out the last uh, two or three lessons, is all we learn from Revelation is the length of the Kingdom, and that Satan will be bound during that one thousand year period, and that he is released at the end of that, that thousand year period, and there will be a uh, a rebellion against God, even in perfect environment. there are those born during that time who will give their allegiance to Satan, and they will reject god and then we also learn the fourth thing we learn is that during that time period that, that the saints will be reigning. Uh, along with Christ. Now, in Zechariah 8.3, we we hear the Lord say, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So this is something that uh, they give great joy about to anticipate the fact that God will return and he will take up his dwelling in Jerusalem in a way that has no precedent. In the Old Testament, we read of the dwelling presence of God in the tabernacle called the Shekinah glory. Then we read about his glory in the in the uh, temple, the Solomonic temple. But Ezekiel saw that glory depart. He saw the stages of his uh, exit, which occurred in the uh, period from around 605 or so B.C., as God had already announced judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah because they had uh, refused to uh, to stay away from idolatry. They had refused to follow the law. They had refused to uh, be loyal to him, and they had continued to succumb to idolatry and various other practices. And so God is going to discipline the nation and remove them from the land. And that began in 605 with the first deportation of Jews to Babylon. And Daniel was in the first deportation in 605. Ezekiel, who was a priest, uh, was in the second deportation that occurred in 597. And then the final assault occurred in 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and then there was another huge uh, number of Jews taken captive and removed to Babylon. But these prophecies are given in that context. Zechariah is after that deportation. And so, it's not the return that comes in 538 that Zechariah is talking about. He was one of the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were responsible to challenge Israel once they had sort of, uh, lost their drive to complete the rebuilding of the, of the, of the second temple. Uh, they were challenging the people to get with it. But in their message, in Zechariah's message, he's not focusing on the glory that will come to that temple, but a future temple. And so that's the context of Zechariah 8.3. The Lord says, I will return to Zion, dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Notice the emphasis on mountain again and again and again as we go through these Uh, These various passages. This never happened in history. So either these prophecies are false or they have yet to be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled exactly as God uh, said they would. Now the prophecies that we know of in scripture that were fulfilled were fulfilled to the very letter. They were precise and they were exact. So we can expect that the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will also be fulfilled with the same level of of literalness and the same level of of specificity. Now, when Ezekiel writes, Ezekiel has a number of different visions, and then in uh, chapter 40, we're told, in the 25th year of our captivity, At the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, which would be about uh, 572, uh, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. So he is taken. He doesn't have an out-of-body experience. He is miraculously transported. And then he is going to have a vision that God is going to give him of Israel. He's transported to Israel and has this vision of the future uh, and this future temple. Now, when we get into this a little bit, and I'm not going to go through all the passages or do a verse-by-verse study of this. I just want to summarize it for everybody. But you should read this and see the precision of his descriptions. It is much more precise and much more detailed than the... than the. um, uh, revelation that God gave to Moses for the tabernacle. And of course, we don't know, we don't have any record of the revelation that God gave to David and Solomon, although it is believed and it's indicated in the text that God did reveal all the dimensions and all the construction plans for the Solomonic temple uh, to David. But he, here we have much more specificity. So, how can we look at uh, the, the, the descriptions in Exodus? in Exodus chapters uh, 20 and following for the furniture, the construction of the tabernacle, and say, well, that was literal. And then we look at the descriptions of the Solomonic temple and say, well, that was literal. But then when we come to uh, Ezekiel 40, we say, well, this is referring to some sort of idealized or heavenly temple. It's not really a literal earthly temple in Jerusalem. Well, that just doesn't make sense if, if we're to understand the scripture like that. Uh, where we take one, you know, historical passages as literal, but because we don't necessarily see how the prophetic passages will be fulfilled, we're going to say, oh, well, those have to be taken in some sort of idealized or spiritualized way. Well, you know, if we uh, uh, follow that kind of uh, uh, interpretive scheme, we're going to end up uh, going to jail whenever we fill out our tax forms. Uh, We just can't make it up as we go along. Uh, we can't say, well, the things that I understand, I'll do them literally, but the things I don't understand, well, I'll idealize or allegorize that, so we'll, we'll somehow put something together. Uh, you can't do that. You have to apply the same uh, rigor, the same specificity, the same literal, plain uh, hermeneutic to every uh, to every portion of Scripture. And so Ezekiel is given various uh, visions about the future Of Israel to give comfort. This is what gives hope and joy to the Israelites that have been evicted from their land is that God's not through with them. God has a glorious future for them. It is a message of hope, it's a message of confidence, and that they can look forward to that, but they have to orient themselves to that future just as we as church age Christians have to orient to God's future plan. Uh, future plan for the church, and so when we get into these latter passages in Ezekiel, starting in Ezekiel 36, and following, uh, we get into the future blessings that God is going to give into to give to Israel as He finally fulfills those promises that He made, starting in uh, passages like Deuteronomy chapter 30, Leviticus 26 and 27, that there would be a restoration to the land and a complete renewal of the people and that they will be restored to the land that God would bring them back from the four corners of the earth and bring them back uh, in a miraculous way as a nation that's whole heart was given to the service of God. And so the way that will be implemented then after the horrors of the wars described in chapters 38 and 39 is that there will be this new temple that will be established on the mountain of the Lord of Hosts, and this temple then becomes the center of the uh, of the worship for all the nations, as we'll see in the in, in the future kingdom. Because all the nations, all the Gentiles, will come to Jerusalem in in order to worship. Now one of the interesting things about this as you get into all the descriptions and the uh that there are certain discrepancies of course between the description of the temple, the dimensions of the temple in in Ezekiel 40 and following and the uh, dimensions of the previous temple and the dimensions of the of the furniture and the uh, the tabernacle. And so, and there's also some differences between the sacrifices. The burnt offerings are mentioned, and the peace offerings are mentioned. Grain offerings. We'll talk about some of these, but there are various differences that are given. And it was the uh, rabbinical thought that that uh, these things couldn't change. Now, eventually, they came up with a rationale for that. That uh, uh, within the revelation that God gave to Moses, there is uh, sort of a uh, a couple of phrases that allow for things to change or develop uh, develop with time, but it created a problem in the early period of uh, of Judaism when they're when they are thinking through the whole issue of what books should be included as holy books and which books shouldn't, or which books should be in the canon. That is the the standard rule of the Old Testament, which books should not. And the story is that there was a rabbi by the name of Kanina ben Hezekiah, who accepted the challenge of studying Ezekiel and proving that it should be in this in the Scripture. And it proved to be quite a challenge for him, and he sequestered himself in a in an upper chamber, and we don't know how long it took, but he expended over three hundred jars of oil in his lamps before he was uh, finally successful in reconciling uh, the sacrifices in the temple in Ezekiel with the uh, revelation in in Leviticus. And uh, we assume that uh, if he hadn't done this, then uh, perhaps Ezekiel might not have been included in the canon. But that's uh, part of the story. And you can just imagine somebody pouring over the old scrolls, trying, scratching his head, going, uh, going from uh, one lamp to another, pouring through the jars of oil, trying to come up with a good interpretation. But the focal point is not just—I mean—the the, the whole uh, doctrine of a future restored temple and future restored sacrifices isn't distinct. To I mean to Ezekiel. Ezekiel expands it, but you have numerous other prophets who also go into uh, into detail. But the element of this, part of the element of this, that lays the foundation for it, is the uh, is the covenant that God will establish uh, with uh, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the uh, future uh, new covenant that uh, is is, uh, put into effect when the Messiah comes. Now, one element of this is seen in this verse, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Now, this is a reference to that remnant of Israel that that Zechariah describes as having made it through this horrific time of uh, warfare, focusing on Jerusalem, describing chapters uh, chapter 10 and 11. We've talked about some of those verses that talk about Israel being like a weight around the th- neck of the, of the nations, or Jerusalem being a, um, a weight around the neck of the Jerusalem, uh, uh, a weight around the neck of the Gentile nations. And in verse 10, we read, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. This is the Messiah speaking. And, of course, uh, this is seen in application to uh, Jesus as the Messiah because he was indeed pierced on the cross. This is the same thing we see in the prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. And that is uh, what the Old Testament prophesies about the death of the Messiah. So here the Messiah is speaking, and he says, they, When I come back, they will look on me whom they pierced. Pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him, uh, Zechariah goes on to say, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So when he returns, he will establish his kingdom. He will establish a new spiritual life that is related to the spirit of God that is poured out upon them. Now, the fact that there will be a rebuilt, a literal rebuilt temple is part of Orthodox uh, Judaism. Those who still hold to a literal understanding of the text believe there will be a future uh, temple that is a messianic uh, temple. I believe this for the same reason that I've outlined already, that if the prophecies, as Rabbi Akiva says, if we have seen the prophecies of the temple's destruction come to pass, and I would add in a literal manner, how much more shall we see the prophecies of its restoration fulfilled? So if God has all these numerous prophecies in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel about the destruction of the temple, then the same prophecies that predict its restoration must also have a literal fulfillment. Now we have seen that, that uh, in the future, in the, when the Messianic kingdom is established, that it will be a time of unprecedented positive volition upon the earth. For all of the nations, as we see, have seen in Isaiah chapter 2 and a number of other passages, that all the nations will come to Jerusalem, to the holy mountain, to worship. Isaiah eleven nine says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Now, that's a great image there, as the waters cover. Cover the Earth, so will the knowledge of the earth, every knowledge of the Lord, everyone will know this same thought is echoed in Habakkuk two fourteen for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. so this isn't just stated one place it's stated several places and is central to understanding the spiritual life of the millennial kingdom it's different from the spiritual life in the present age which is different from the spiritual life uh, in the uh, Mosaic law era. In the Mosaic law era, you had certain sacrifices that were relate, that were uh, revealed and are described in Leviticus. In the present church age, there is not ritual at a central sanctuary. This is not part of, of the spiritual life in the church age. But in the future millennial kingdom, once again, there is a return to focus on Israel, Focus on a set, central sanctuary, and there will be restored sacrifices. Now, in uh, Exodus uh, nineteen six, we see that, that Israel was originally called for a purpose, a spiritual purpose, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now they failed in that function in the Old Testament. This is why the northern kingdom was taken out uh, by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom was taken out uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they failed that. They failed it again when they were restored, although it was just a partial restoration uh, from Babylon that came in uh, 5, 538 and following. They never fulfilled that mission to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, but that will take place in the millennial kingdom. That's the description. So they become the focal point of the spiritual life in the millennial kingdom. Dwight Pentecost, who, by the way, is still alive. He's about 94 years old now and still has all of his wits about him and is uh um still teaching uh, one course a semester, I think, at the Dallas Seminary. Uh, has written a number of excellent books dealing with the uh, whole topic of prophecy, along with a number of other good commentaries in Scripture. And uh, Dr. P., as we called him, uh, writes in his book, Thy Kingdom Come, uh, During the millennial reign of Christ, Israel as a nation will fulfill the function for which they were originally set apart by God they will become a kingdom of priests who are intermediaries between those who need to be saved. That is those who are born in the, in the millennial uh, kingdom who are born yet. They still need to trust in the Messiah for their salvation. Those who need to be saved and the King who provides salvation, they will become as they they were originally appointed to be God's lights to the world. And so this is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Now, Another aspect of the spiritual life in the millennial kingdom is there are going to be uh, some overt and miraculous uh, demonstrations of the Holy Spirit that are far beyond anything that have been seen in the church age period or in the transition in the book of Acts. And by the way, when we wrap up our study here on Tuesday night in uh, Revelation, then we're going to move into Acts. So we'll probably be in Acts before the end of the year, maybe by uh, mid-fall sometime. So that's going to be a really good uh, good thing to study. But anyhow, what, what happens is that uh, in the first part of Acts, it's a transition period. And in Acts 2 and in Acts 3, Peter is still offering the kingdom to Israel. And he's still quoting from the Old Testament passages related to that. You know, repent for the times of refreshing will come. They're not, the discipline of AD 70 hasn't hit yet. So there's still that opportunity for them to to turn and accept uh, Jesus as the, as the Messiah. And, um, and so when he's speaking on the day of Pentecost and he quotes from Joel 2 and other passages in the early part of Acts and they quote from these Old Testament Uh, prophecies related to the kingdom it is because it's still possible uh, theoretically that Israel could turn accept Jesus as a Messiah and the kingdom would come and so the demonstrations of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost the flames of fire that came down over the over the uh, apostles uh, speaking in tongues uh, the healing those were not only authenticated their gifts as apostles but it was also a foretaste of what it would uh some of the things that would take place during the uh millennial uh kingdom period. Now, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the messianic kingdom is seen in pa- and often linked with passages related to the new covenant uh in the Old Testament. Now, one of the passages we looked at last time was in Ezekiel chapter 37, and I just want to briefly uh uh touch on that and point out a few things and make some connections. In Ezekiel 37, it reiterates in a little different language uh, the same elements that we see in Jeremiah 31 and other passages related to uh, the new covenant. Uh, in Ezekiel 37:25, we read, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant. So it's talking about a future time when all of Israel is restored to the land, the land that God defined to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, bordered by the river of Egypt and the river Euphrates and the Mediterranean, all the area currently part of Syria, part of Lebanon, part of uh, Jordan, and we'll look at a map in just a minute that will uh, uh, show show the extent of that land that was promised to Abraham. They shall dwell there, then their children, children, children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. That's the resurrected David. Verse uh, 26, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And now what covenant is that? That is the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah uh, 31, and it's an everlasting covenant, not like the Mosaic covenant, which was temporary, but this covenant called the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is a covenant that is uh, everlasting and is made by God. And as part of this, at the last of that verse, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So that is, again, a prophecy related to a future a uh, future temple. In Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, this is the key passage on, on the new covenant where God says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, the, after those days refers to that horrible time period described as the time of Jacob's trouble in jeremiah what we refer to as the great tribulation the period covered in daniel's 70th week that is yet future Uh, but this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people so again there's a complete spiritual renewal of israel during the uh, time of the messianic kingdom Goes on to say, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So no more divine discipline for Israel and everything is, uh, is, is restored and they are experiencing maximum, uh, blessing from God. This is related to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah thirty-two fifteen. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered a forest. Now there's a lot of of uh, re- uh, reclamation of the land in the desert in Israel today, but it's nothing like what is going to happen during the future Messianic uh, Messianic Kingdom. Another passage is in Isaiah forty-four. Uh, verse 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That never happened in the Old Testament. It is a prophecy, though, of the future that has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, Ezekiel thirty-nine twenty-nine: I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. And then Joel two twenty eight and 29, this comes right after the prediction of the day of the Lord in Joel 2. And at the end of the day of the Lord, which is that period of Jacob's trouble, the period of Daniel's 70th week, the period we refer to as the great tribulation, Joel said, uh, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind... And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Now, that's the passage that Peter quoted in Acts 2. The problem is that in Acts 2, nobody prophesied, nobody dreamed dreams, and nobody saw visions. What did they do? They spoke in tongues, in languages. Now... All that Peter was saying was that what they were experiencing was similar to what Joel said in Joel 2. He's not saying it was a direct fulfillment. And he concluded in verse 29 by saying, And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so once again, we see the role of the spirit as being central to the spiritual life in the Messianic kingdom. Ezekiel 36, uh, 24 to 27. If you... uh, See, in the first verse, it talks about that restoration, and regathering of Israel. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is a picture of national corporate regeneration. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So once again, it's a focus on the role of the spirit. Uh, Zechariah 12.10, I will put on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. Ezekiel 37.14, I will put my spirit in you. Again and again and again, the focus is on the spirit. Well, when we come to the temple, we're going to see that there is this connection now between the worship at the temple and all the millennial ritual associated with that. But unlike in the Old Testament period, the future temple worship is going to have this dimension that is energized uh, by God the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, it's, it's, it's very different from... From either the the uh, Old Testament period or the present Church Age. Now, in this chart, chart I have just a um, uh, depiction here, timeline, going through the history of the temple. We have the first temple uh, under Solomon that lasted for 374 years, from 960 uh, BC to 586 BC. Then there was a 70-year uh, gap between. Uh, When when the temple's tore down before the second temple, the Zerubbabel temple was uh, dedicated in 516, then that temple lasted until A.D. 70. There's a renovation of the temple that begins uh, somewhere around 12 B.C. under Herod, but it's not completed until about 46 B.C., But the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices on the altars never stop. So it's not considered two different temples. Yeah, the first temple is a Solomonic temple. Second temple is the, uh, has two phases to it. The temple is rubble, the temple, uh, the Herodian temple. And then that is destroyed in uh, AD 70. And then we then go throughout this period known as the Church Age until the third temple is rebuilt, which takes place in the future uh, time of uh, tribulation or the time of Jacob's wrath. That temple is desecrated by the future Antichrist. And then when the Messiah comes, uh, he will then, uh, that temple will have been destroyed by then in all of the war that takes place, and he will... Uh, rescue Israel and he will build a new uh, temple which is the fourth temple the millennial temple now in, in Judaism they don't see this distinction between the two the, the tribulation temple and the millennial temple the, they, there is a clear understanding of, uh, of the, uh, the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple and they just think of that as the as, as the next temple. What's kind of fun in Israel, every now and then you'll see in various shops they have models of the uh, second temple. And we, I bought one of those a couple of years ago and we have it in prep school. But in, in one of the stores there's a little sign out in front that says uh, uh, get yours now before they start building the uh, third temple and the prices go up. As I've pointed out before, in Isaiah two, the prophecy is that there's this this you know earthquake or something that causes this this uh, mountain to rise in in Jerusalem, and the it's on that mountain that the house of the Lord and this is a temple um, uh, a phrase for the temple the house of the Lord will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his path. So the whole world is focused on the, on the spiritual life centering in Israel and centering in uh, Jerusalem. In Isaiah 25, we read, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Uh, Isaiah 56, 7, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. Now, what did you notice in that verse? This is not Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40 to 48 talking about sacrifices in the future temple. This is Isaiah talking about burnt offerings and acceptable sacrifices on the altar in that future temple. Now, what is that all about? How are we supposed to understand that? Now, we learn also from, as we look at these Old Testament passages, that it will be the Messiah uh, who builds the temple. This is seen in uh, Zechariah 6.12. They will say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold a man whose name is branch. That goes back to Isaiah chapter eleven uh, and the connection there between the branch of the house of Jesse as the as a term for the Messiah. A man whose name is branch, we will branch out from where he is, who will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So he will function as the ultimate high priest in Israel as well. Uh, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-eight: the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And the other thing that will take place, according to Ezekiel 43, uh, verses 4 to 5, is that that Shekinah glory that departed, left, went out the front door of the temple, then he saw it go out to the east gate, and then across the Kidron Valley, up the uh, Mount of Olives, and then ascended to heaven, uh, the exact spot on the Mount of Olives where Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Then the glory of the Lord is going to return and come into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. This isn't the east gate that's there now. That wall was built by uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. It is not the east gate that's there in the wall now. Is not the location of the east gate that was at the walls at the time of Jesus or even at the Solomonic time. Um, I always think it's quite amusing that the, Israel, that the uh, uh, Muslims built a uh, uh, cemetery out there to keep the Messiah from coming in because he can 't go on unclean ground, but he 's just going to blast his way in, and that 's not going to stop him that just some people are just so uh, superficial in the way and limited in the way they view God so in Ezekiel, we have this this uh, description of the glories of the future nation nation of Israel, and this uh, this map depicts the size of the nation. notice that uh, the extent goes from the river of Egypt, which is uh, most scholars believe isn't the Nile, but the Wadi El-Karish, which is uh, down in the Sinai below the Gaza Strip. And that this goes across to the Euphrates. This is the description God gave to, uh, gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And that the tribal allotments will be in this sort of parallel uh, fashion that go all the way across the land from uh, from west to east. Now what I want you to focus on uh, when you look at this is that uh, about a third of the way up, you have a wide section that's designated as the prince's portion. And then over in the left in the area that is in, uh, that sort of straddles the Jordan River, is the area that is uh, reserved for the, the whole temple uh, complex itself, which is approximately a mile square, and this is the area where the priests will live, the area where all of the sacrificial animals are kept, and that's the focus of the next slide. Now, in this slide, what we have is an exploded section there on the right that gives you a little broader. Uh, scope of the size of this whole area—it's approximately six and a half miles square. You have the Levites' portion uh, on the uh, across the top, then in the center you have the priest portion, and then below that there's uh, three different sections given. Uh, one's the city land, one is for the city itself, and then the third is the the uh, city land itself. So you have approximately. Uh, Eight and a half mile square area there, designated for the, uh, the all the priests and then the temple in the middle. Now this diagram, and there are various different diagrams of the Millennial Temple, uh, but this is it's pretty close to how most of them are. Uh, you have a couple of different areas here. Let me point out: this is your central sanctuary right here. Uh, this would be the uh, 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 altar where the sacrifices would would take place then you ha- notice there's, there's uh, no labor then there's a this is the uh, central sanctuary itself with the outer holy place and the holy of holies uh, inside which is where you would have the indwelling presence of God you had various other uh, places here for the priest chambers that's the PC here that's not politically correct that's the uh, priest chambers, and then you have the uh, the R here, uh, thirty rooms in the outer courtyard uh, for um, for priests as well. You have the uh, this is a gate here. This G1 here is the outer gate. And then you have another inner gate located uh, right here. Each of these is described in detail with precise measurements. Um, in these chapters in e- Ezekiel, and so it's sort of like ri- reading uh, reading a blueprint. So I don't want to, you know, it'd be more exciting to watch paint dry. So I'm not going to do that. Won't do that to you. But I'll show you a couple of these now. Now this is that uh, entry uh, entry gate. I've just it's just exploded up a little uh, larger, so it has place for guards and a place for storage. And if I uh, back it up, see this is the area that's located uh, right here, and, um, and also in this, this area here, so they're uh, uh, almost identical. Then the next one I'm going to show you is the area of the millennial altar, which is inside the inner court he- here. Okay. Then we go to this slide, and we see the dimensions of the altar, and uh, there's a gutter that's around it to drain off the uh, all of the uh, blood and the fluids. Then you have uh, the horns of the altar on each of the four corners. You have uh, various other uh, portions, ornamentation, etc., on the on the altar, and a, then here you have uh, the stair. Stairs to go up on to the top, uh, top of the altar. So the altar itself is about 32 feet by 32 feet, about 10 yards by 10 yards, so it's quite large. Now, what will take place here is that there will be various different, uh, sacrifices that are carried out on the, um, on the altar. Now, these will differ to some degree from the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, dispensationalists specifically, but those who believe in a literal interpretation of prophecy, those who believe in a futurist interpretation of prophecy, recognize that this has got to be taken literally. You you, you have two options here when you read through all this detail in, in Ezekiel, and that is that it's not literal, it's not actual, and there's no future sacrifices, or it's literal and it's actual, and there are future sacrifices. And we have to understand that this isn't a conflict with the completed work of Christ. And one of the things that, that has been very helpful for me in the last uh, two years is that uh, we began a somewhat significant study in Hebrews, Uh, a little over two years ago, where we went through uh, the tabernacle and all of the sacrifices. And then at the same time, uh, we were going through the first part of 1 Kings with Solomon's construction of the temple and the prayer of dedication and all of the sacrifices that took place at that time. And so that afforded me the opportunity to really get into a lot of those Old Testament passages, which, frankly, are not studied that much by... Uh, by that many people and it's it's not easy material to go through and it's uh, as you try to wade your, through the details of those passages and then relate them to uh to Hebrews and some of the other New Testament references is uh, it's a tremendous amount of material uh, to control In the first part of of uh of Leviticus there are 5 different uh, sacrifices that are identified there. There's the burnt offering, there's the grain offering, there's the peace offering, there's the uh, sin offering, and the guilt offering. And those are the five different offerings. But one thing you have to remember is that these are sacrifices that the people in the nation who are part of what kind of a nation? A redeemed nation. So nationally they're viewed as being God's firstborn already. And the, the, the sacrifices are do not bring them salvation. They didn't nobody in the Old Testament got saved by bringing a sacrifice to the temple. The sacrifices had to do with the ritual worship or ceremonial worship of God. And so the all of the uh, things that went on from the feasts that were related to the temple to the sacrifices themselves were designed to teach certain spiritual truths to the uh to the Israelites primarily that they were worshiping a holy god a god who could not have anything to do with sin and that there was a penalty for sin and that that penalty had to be uh, applied that penalty had to uh be enacted so that his justice is not compromised. And so the sacrifices had to do with uh, appeasing, is one word that's used, it's not my favorite word, or satisfying, that's a much better word, his judicial demands. And so there was a limited or temporary effectiveness to these animal sacrifices. Now, we live in a modern world today where people just think, think that this whole idea of animal sacrifices is just this is just so barbaric and so primitive, and uh, they, they' bought into the whole concept of the uh, sort of a evolutionary view of, of religion. And in doing that, they missed the whole point in looking at these sacrifices. It was horrible. It was nasty. It was terrible. When we go through some of the details, uh, I mentioned some on Sunday morning, and you think about how many animals were slaughtered. This was a butcher shop uh, that was taking place here. The meat, of course, was not wasted. It, it became meat for the uh, feeding the, uh, the the Levites and the priests. Uh, the blood was applied to the altar to depict death and and. And, and you had all of the other things that were associated with cleaning the animals and skinning them and everything else. Nothing was wasted, but uh, some of it, of course, in terms of the burnt offerings, all of it was burnt. But all of this was designed to teach that sin was something that was that was horrible in the eyes of God, and that it couldn 't be rationalized it couldn 't be Uh, glossed over, but that God indeed had a solution. And that's why they could express great joy and happiness is because there was, there was a, a propitiatory sacrifice, there was redemption, and sin was dealt with. But every year it had to be dealt with again and again and again and again. And it went on and on. And so, uh, there was nothing permanent about the solution, uh, to the sin, uh, to the sin problem and in the process of bringing the sacrifices i'm just going to focus on one which is the uh, the sin offering in leviticus 420 the priest would bring the sacrificial animal in this case the bull uh just as he did with the bull the sin offering thus he shall do it do with it so the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven "...and all of its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he shall be forgiven." It was a real forgiveness, but it wasn't a permanent forgiveness. Okay, see, that's the thing that has to be understood. It's good until the next sin, and then there has to be another sacrifice." That's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. Remember, we did that long study in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that that was the, the difference by focusing on the, the fact that all these Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed a perfect sacrifice that would be the once-for-all sacrifice for sin and wouldn't need to be repeated again, and and that there would be final uh, forgiveness at as a result of that substitutionary sacrifice. Now, what would happen in the process of the sacrifice is that the worshiper puts his hand on the animal, indicates an identification, the transfer of sin, and depicts the whole concept of a substitutionary uh, sacrifice, or what we call substitutionary atonement. Now, I ran across this interesting uh, statement, uh, explanation from... Uh, the, a Jewish rabbi from the Middle Ages by the name of Nachmanides, also referred to in the short form as simply Ramban, and his dates were 1194 to 1270. And he explained sacrifice, very interesting, as an execution in effigy. An execution in effigy. He captured the whole concept of substitution right there. And it's amazing because when you look at his dates, late 12th century, that it had only been 200 years before that, around 1,000, that Anselm, who was a a medieval uh, monk in Europe, finally figured out that the focal point of the atonement had to do with substitution. And there had been all kinds of various... uh, uh, different ideas prior to that. But he's the first to really articulate a clear understanding of substitutionary atonement uh, just about a 100 years before that. But but Naumontides clearly understood it. And he said that a sacrifice, uh, a burnt offering, was an execution effigy for the burning of each body part of the animal. And the sprinkling of the blood is reckoned as if it were the person's own. And in his commentary on Leviticus 1.9 on the burnt offerings, he went on to then express the penal nature related to the substitutionary sacrifice. I mean, that's, that's exactly what Christians say is the focal point of what Christ is do, was doing on the cross. And so we have these Old Testament sacrifices, the idea of substitution, uh, etc., but we recognize Hebrews 10:4 that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that verse doesn't say it they didn't it, they did nothing. They had a temporary efficacy in fact the writer of Hebrews says it was good for the cleansing or purification of the flesh. It had to do with ritual purification, not ultimate uh, judicial or or uh soul purification. So when we look at the sacrifices that are mentioned in Ezekiel, first of all, we have the burnt offering. And the burnt offering, the purpose for the burnt offering was that the whole animal was placed on the altar, and then it was burned. Everything was burned. And it depicted complete devotion to God, and that that everything that the worshiper was giving his whole life in dedication uh, to the service of of God, and it depicts a complete uh, ceremonial cleansing of the worshiper. Now, there's nothing in that that would conflict with Christ's death on the cross, which isn't a, for a ceremonial cleansing, it is for an actual or real judicial cleansing. Now, you didn't have that in the Old Testament sacrifices, those Old Testament sacrifices just gave you a ritual access. To the temple that was that was it now, the grain offering that 's also mentioned many times in ezekiel forty to forty eight is a tribute offering given to God. This is where they bring the grain and they would uh, mix it together and they would cook it in various uh, d- different ways and uh, this was a tribute offering or gift to God in gratitude for his blessings in their life. The peace offering is the only offering. Of that nature, where both the worshiper and uh, where the worshiper ate of the meal because he is sharing that it is a picture of the fact that he already has peace with God. It's not the peace offering wasn't to get peace with, with God, but he already had it, so now he's celebrating uh, that he has peace with God and fellowship with God. Then the sin offering uh, was designed for ceremonial, ceremonially cleansing the worshiper. From uh, sins he didn't know were sins, from inadvertent sins, and then the guilt offering provided ceremonial cleansing uh, for uh, the worshipper where the sins involved some sort of uh, monetary or physical remuneration that that could be accomplished. And so then uh, you had those two. That's the distinction between the two different offerings. Now in the in the uh, worship in the temple in the millennial temple, the priests. That are born in the tribu- in, excuse me in the millennial period will still be sinners they'll be in their mortal bodies, they will still sin, and so they will still commit acts that will make them ritually and ceremonially unclean. So if they're going to go into the temple and serve in the temple, then there has to be ritual cleansing and ceremonial cleansing for their service in the temple, and that's the purpose of those sacrifices. Uh, for those who are going into the temple to worship God. It is a physical representation to remind people of the actual judicial payment that was taking, uh, taken care of uh, by cro- Christ on the cross. Now, in the millennial kingdom, uh, we know that in Ezekiel chapter 40, that that it's not all the levites because only these are uh, all the descendants of Aaron can serve as, as high priests but only the sons of Zadok can uh, serve in the temple because of their dedication and loyalty to David during the time of uh, Absalom's rebellion now the typical response that you get from so many Christians today is that there's something wrong with this picture in fact uh, Tommy was called uh, a heretic by uh, Hank Hanegraaff on the air because he held to uh, literal sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, This is a quote from Ed Clowney, who was the president of Westminster Seminary uh, a few years back. He's a covenant theologian, thus a replacement theology. So he doesn't believe in a literal future for Israel. Uh, He says, Jesus is the only mediator, his blood the final sacrifice. There can be no going back. If there's a way back to the ceremonial law, to the types and shadows of what has now become the bondage of legalism, then Paul labored and ran in vain. More than that, Christ died in vain. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. A couple of other passages and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Isaiah 56:7 also speaks of this that there will be burnt offerings and sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 66:20, a grain offering will take place in the millennial temple. Uh, Jeremiah 33:18, burnt offerings in the millennial period. Uh, Zechariah 14 talks about the observance of the feast of booths, the various uh, feasts during the uh, that are part of the Jewish. Uh, ritual calendar, so all of this is part of the future uh, millennial period Malachi three three and four uh, there will be an offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in verse four as in the days of old. so there is definitely uh, a future spiritual life that in the millennial kingdom that involves sacrifice a return to sacrifices as, as a t- training aid and as a teaching aid in terms of understanding ceremonial uncleanness and ritual impurity to understand uh, sin and the need for atonement and what Christ did on the cross. So we'll come back next time to look at what happens at the end of the millennial period in terms of Satan's rebellion and the great white throne uh, judgment. Let's bow our heads in closing in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can look at these uh, doctrines this evening, look at these passages, come to understand the future, but the future helps us understand the past and the present and it puts our focus again on the need for a permanent solution to the sin problem and that is the joy of our salvation as uh, even uh, David mentioned in the Old Testament, that uh, this, uh, the sin problem is resolved by the work of Christ on the cross. Now Father, we pray that you would Uh, Just uh, help us to put together the things we've studied and that we can understand them and that they'll be part of our uh, spiritual enrichment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.